Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. We're gonna get get started. What happened? Joe, do you have a question? No. Okay. Does anybody else have a question? Okay, guys, we're gonna get started. Okay. Hang on one second. So first, um, first, I just wanted to say thank you, as always. But you know, I. Um, when I remember back to like my days before I became Muslim and I used to think about how regular my bouts with anxiety were and I go back, like when I hear all of these lessons because every single surah you talk about signs of lack of divinity, emptiness, hollowness, just like what happens to you when you don't have God in you or faith or something that anchors you to something beautiful. And it's a real lesson for me because I just remember waking up every morning worried and hope, hoping that today would be an okay day, that I wouldn't be hit with anxiety, I wouldn't be hit with depression, I wouldn't be, you know, feeling just a lack of anchor, right? And so every single time you talk about that and you remind us that this is a sign, that it just, I, it makes me feel so grateful that I, you know, it's like I don't have, not to say I don't have anxiety, I mean, anxiety obviously is a, is a normal part of life, but when I think about how much anxiety I had and how much my anchor was about anxiety and hope for happiness and these empty things that really don't mean anything and are like, like blowing on a dandelion, it's just gone, you know? And so I just, like, every time you cover these issues in surahs, I just feel like, you know, so grateful and just like, it's almost like when you're watching a movie and the different pieces are coming together of the mystery and you get to hear a little bit more and you go, oh, okay, I'm starting to get it. And like when that applies to your life and how you live life and your outlook and just your peace and state of mind, because when you have so much anxiety over every little thing um, and, you know, and then that actually can be replaced with peace it means so much and I think like I've said before like as a convert because oftentimes you live in that darkness you know what it is to live in darkness and so when you actually are saved and plucked by God and you, you know and allowed to become Muslim and allowed to experience light you never want to go back and you're so grateful every single time you are reminded of the darkness from which you came and the alternative and I think that for converts especially, you know, when you feel like there's no going back, I don't ever want to go back to that. And it just feels like, alhamdulillah, that there is an alternative that brings you peace. It's just so, it's, and then now to be going chapter by chapter and learning another piece of the puzzle and that it just gets better and it just gets more complete is, is such a blessing. So thank you for impersonal. Heritage, heritage Muslims, as you called them, uh, as you called them, heritage Muslims, um, need to experience that that feeling of of being born into uh, once you. You know, what uh, um, once you feel Allah, the feeling never leaves you. Uh, it is undeniable and unmistakable, and. Um, You know, I, I feel the, the part that, uh, I, I you know, I get so many messages from young people who sit and, you know, they ask a, a million questions about, oh, I have doubt about this and I have doubt about this and I have doubt about that. And no matter what answers you give them, that it's it's like treating symptoms mm -hmm. because they they haven't felt a lot uh, they're approaching it completely from the wrong thing it is not someone giving them an intelligent response to this event in the seerah of the prophet or or that 
Aya or that um, something in their upbringing deny them the ability to feel God and so they're, they're approaching the, the, the whole thing from entirely the wrong I wish everyone was a convert I, I believe everyone needs to be a convert, especially the heritage Muslims. <laughs> um, because it, it's, if you don't know that feeling, um, then you, I, I feel like you're, you're really going in about, about it the wrong way. And like, it starts out, it feels like it starts out as an intellectual journey, but you can't, you can't cross the barrier until your heart opens. And it's like your heart is only going to open if you are like talking to God and, and like God allows you to feel that peace, you know? It's like, it's like finally connecting with a long lost friend and it's, there's like a familiarity that is so um, intuitive and if you, if you never have that, that touch of, of like, of, of, of beauty or familiarity or like it's like coming home and to something that you've known forever and I feel like if la short of that then you're just trying to create something intellectually but that's not where it comes from you agree thank, thank you though I mean because I, I feel like also for converts we can only go so far maybe everybody, right? You can only go so far um, with what you know, and then when you actually can access this deeper meaning in the Quran, which for someone like me is impossible, I don't know Arabic, and I know that I will not have the time in my life, or that, you know, I'm, I can't learn Arabic, and certainly not to access this by myself. So this is the only path for me. Mm -hmm. It makes you feel better, most Arabic speakers, the vast majority of Arabic speakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are billions of there, there, there are millions of Arabic speakers and they're useless. <laughs> anyway, alhamdulillah, thank you. Um, okay, so did you want to start, Are you gonna announce the talk tomorrow? Oh yes, sorry. Before we start, one more thing. Time. Okay, yeah. So let me just announce. Thank you for reminding me. Um, tomorrow, um, actually, the sheikh is having a conversation hosted by um, Istanbul Zain University in, in, uh, in Istanbul. Um, and it's the Center for Islamic and Global Affairs, CIGA, C-I-G-A. So if you do a search online, this is Sami El Arian's, um, you know, like, um, organiz it's not an organization, it's uni his university and his department. And they've been doing something very cool, like for the 30 days of Ramadan, they've been having conversations with like, um, you know, big name people. They're not just scholars, but they're different people that are significant in the Muslim world. But then scholars and Samuel Arian will have conversations with these individuals about their life. So he's going to get questions about like his early influences and his scholarship and his work. And, you know, it's it's going to be a very um, interesting, like personal conversation. So that's tomorrow morning, 1030 Eastern time. Um, and they're going to live stream it. So um, if you go to our social media, you can find the links for it. Or you can also just search up um, Istanbul Zaim, Z-A-I-M, or the Center for um, Islamic and Global Affairs, um, or Sami Al Arian. They also have like a Facebook presence and things like that. So, so join us for that. I'm sure they're also going to record it. So if you can't make it at that time, you'll you know we'll share it on our social media so you can watch the recording afterwards. It's called their second Ramadan series. It's called their second mm -hmm. Ramadan series. So, and if if anyone has any questions, you can you can email any of us here so we, mm -hmm. we can you know let you know. So, okay. It'd be very cool. Uh, <clears throat> I just had a brief question about um, sources because um, the narrations that you provide regarding historical, you know, things it really helps enlighten the commentary so much and it develops the point so clearly. And I just wondered, are these prophetic narrations or, um, you know, where are they coming from? Because they seem a bit out of reach 
and I'm wondering um, if there are prophetic narrations, how does that, I, it feels almost unfair to ask, but how does that work? Because is it is it like a direct kind of knowledge? Or, you know, is it kind of conjecture? Or, and and if it's not, you know, where where else in the tradition is it coming from? And then how, how do the commentators then decide which ones to use and to not use? Is it based off of chain of transmission? Or what, no. what are they using to be able to come to that? Can you paraphrase that? Yeah, the, the question is about sources and, and so and the the sources on and it's the especially in in the in Surat Saba, um, it it puts us it presents us with the issue of there's a reference to a, a a civilization and and so the question is well you know are you using prophetic narrations or are you or basically how do you get the backdrop to um surat saba so um and um, There is a prophetic narration that gives us it's it's a useful but in in a interesting way. Um, the Prophet is asked about Saba and he is told was Saba a kingdom or was Saba a queen in that narration? Uh, and he says something to the effect that Saba was a, a, a lineage and he names the, the, the names of, uh, I believe it was 10 tribes. Um, that's the the prophetic narration that we have, um, and um, so beyond that, then when I wanted to understand Ba'id Baina Asfarina, when you you do a survey of all the Islamic sources and the historical sources like not um like tabari or tarikh ibn kathir um they give you inform information but a lot of it is um mythology mixed with history so they they sort of throw all the reports in and what i found myself having to do with surah Saba is I in wanting to understand Ba'id Bayna Asfarina, then I found these constant references in Islamic sources um, that clearly indicated a desire to monopolize wealth. But it would express it in ways that were, you know, like the, 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 the report that, or the, the um, the narration that said that the rich people wanted to use cattle um, so that it becomes unaffordable to the to the um, more uh, people with more moderate means, but it, it, that didn't drive with a historical record. From so, the more I researched what is available, and even in in um, uh, there, there's a book, for instance, in English that was um, called Arabs in Late Antiquity that I remember reading uh, at the time. Um, and there was even, I, I think there was a book called Arabs, History of Arabs Before Islam. And there are a few good Arabic sources, among them, 
an encyclopedic source um, that's downstairs uh, called Tariq Qaba'il al-Arab that goes into considerable detail because a lot of the Arab tribes that inhabited Arabia, Iraq, Bahrain, uh, Jordan, Egypt uh, came from the quote-unquote diaspora after the destruction of the dam of Yemen. And so what I found with Surat Sabah is that I was reading a lot of historical sources trying to figure out what happened in the deterioration. What did this mean, Ba'id Bayna Asfarina? Um, what was the, what is it that they tried to achieve? And the other thing that was also clear as the, as you looked into the, um, the, the development of events is that as Seba extended its colonies to, and especially the, the rich classes, cre created colonies in Sham, they started thinking of extending their trade to India and China. And the profits of extending the trade to India and China would have been monumental, but these trade routes were very insecure. And, but in order to get people to, they, they started, um, uh, uh, forcing people to carry their products because they, they, you know, basically if then they were killed by highway robbers, it's not, yeah. So they were sacrificing human beings in order to reach trades in China. And, and so you, sometimes in order to, um, Surah Sabah is a good example of a surah where there's a lot of scholarly research that went into understanding this, this, this particular issue of Surah Sabah. Because there's a lot of mythology, Arab mythology, and even I discovered that there's a lot of Abyssinian mythology about uh, the empire of Sabah and about Queen of Sheba in particular. Um, at one point I was even started reading about the relationship between the early alphabet used by the people of Sabah and the development of Arabic, um, which lent some very interesting insight. Because I wasn't planning uh, to ever share any of this, I found myself that I was reading with a, a great deal of um, enthusiasm because I was just doing it for my own and when you're not doing things worried that you're not worried about publishing anything or lecturing about anything then you you pursue your interests wherever they are I, I even read a book about uh, gym locations in current day Yemen and uh, and it was very fascinating because apparently there are towns in, in Yemen where Sabah uh, used to be uh, that are, you know, that people will not even go because they're known as horribly haunted and so on. I don't know what happened to them now, but, um, but yeah, so there are a few sore in the Quran we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that because where things like that happen where you I, I've read spent a lot of time reading what the mythology of the Old Testament especially and the Talmud was said about Queen of Sheba I found a lot of it uh, part of the delusions that Surat Sabah itself was warning about. Because it could easily suck you into these fantastical narratives that had nothing to do with anything. 
Um, so, yeah. Just following up on that issue, so does that mean that the people of Seba are al Arab al Ariba? And that uh, because then the decline of Seba would coincide with when uh, Ibrahim left Hajar and Ismail in, in Mecca? Or is that not? No, it, 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 it is both. Um, there, the 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 history of um, the decline. Uh, the, okay, before I go, the history of Sabbath, the decline of Sabbath takes place about five hundred years before the Prophet Alaihi mm -hmm. Um But. The, the the question about the Arab al Arabi is that the Arabs are descendants of what are the other group called? Mustariba. Mustariba. The uh, the sort of the two main groups from that came from Yemen. Uh, sort of. Uh, although now historians even cast doubt as to the these two groups, or that, but but. Uh, Two main uh, descendants of Yemeni tribes, um, but it's not it, it, the decline of Saba is not at the time of Ismail, uh, The decline of Saba is well after that. Um, the settlement of although there are reports. Which I don't believe that uh, the Seba. Maybe I actually wrote it down. Hold on. Um, that they are descendants of. I might have. Um, that they are descendants of. Yeah, Ibn Yashjub bin Ya'rib bin Qahtan bin Hud. They they are with the descendants of Hud. But when I researched that, it seemed very unlikely that they are the descendants of Hud. seemed strange to me that um, when we get to the story of, of, of Sabbat that a flood came and then the flood caused gardens to produce fruits that are bitter and disgusting because I mean it, it seems more likely if that's taken literally that a flood would come and destroy the gardens and there yeah. wouldn't be any fruit so then I wonder do you think it's like in the shorter surahs when you would provide three different methodologies for interpreting it. Is this grounds for it being interpreted more as a parable that describes, you know, you're given something and when you forget that it ultimately comes from God, that even that thing, like, becomes bitter, you, you lose enjoyment in it. Much like in Surat Saad with, um, with Solomon when he was dead on the throne. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, in Sufi Tafsirs, they say that the flood is is symbolic for an excess of wealth, and that as you are gorged on wealth, you no longer enjoy anything, and as you no longer enjoy anything, you covet excess. You go for extremes. Um, and they draw a comparison to the uh, story of Jews and Moses when they told him, no, we, we want 
we miss the, the, the lesser fruits or the lesser things that we used to have in Egypt. That they're given a lot of bounties, but then they rebel against that wealth and they start coveting or missing, missing things that are less lucrative. Um, with Surat Sabah, the reason I didn't uh, pause, pause at that is because um, it's interesting that after the flood, one of the things that happens is, um, and I'm not sure about like precisely, is that the apparently the land, I forgot the, the, the English word for it, salinates, or it becomes salty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're right, salinates. Yeah. Um, and as the land salinates, uh, the, the, the nature of the soil changes. And as the nature of the soil changes, the type of things that could grow mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. changed. And, and there, there been, we found archaeological evidence that, in fact, one of the things that, the, initially the flood causes massive destruction and a lot of people die and so on. But the bigger disaster is that the long term is that the, the soil itself becomes more salty and the water uh, becomes the, the constant and then the water actually starts after the flood, initial flood, more of the water starts disappearing. And eventually, like if you go to these areas in Yemen now, it's all dried beds, you know, all the valleys are just completely dry. Um, so it, it seemed like a systematic, consistent, natural disaster. Um, and there are enough references to the Quran that the, that the destruction of, of the dam was divine punishment. Um, Egyptians will, will hate me, but I think a similar wrath is going to befall <laughs> Egypt uh, with the Ethiopian dam. Um, the Nile River will deteriorate and then the land will salinate and Egyptians are going to come upon very hard times. The the blessings of Sisi. Yeah. Okay, any more questions here? Okay. Um, oh, is this an interactive group? Or yeah, yours? but you go for it if you're, yeah, I was going to start an interactive group. Mine is yesterday's question, just about oh, yeah. should we save that for later? Um, we have one question about Sartre Jin. Should we do now or leave it from yesterday? What Rami was going to ask you? No, ask it and then I'll decide. About the shooting stars. About the shooting stars. Oh, uh, what was the question? You know how it mentions Shuhub? Yeah. And the Mufasirun say, oh, like shooting stars are what's striking down. But I mean, it's problematic because it you know, implies like a direction of the Samawat and things like that. Yeah, the. Um, Okay, yeah, the, the question is from Surah um, Jinn, where the Qur'an says that when the, the jinn try to eavesdrop, uh, it, Shahab chases after them. And we, there is a hadith where the Prophet it's attributed to the Prophet that uh, he, um, he, according to the Hadith that he sees a shooting star or, and he told them, he tells his companions this is chasing a jinn or something to that effect. But it's not a, it's not a very, um, 
it's not a, a hadith of great authenticity. There are many there's problems in this chain, so it's not. Um, but interestingly, um, there are a lot of theologians who've actually written, I mean, who commented about this, that um, we are told that in al-Mala al-A'la that they're chased by Ishahab. Now, Ishahab could be a comet, could be an asteroid, could be an, a, an X-ray, could be an energy force, could be something. We, we, we just don't know. Um, but just because we see something in the heavens, like a shooting star, can we say we are seeing something from Mala al-Ala? And the a lot of commentators said no, because you can't assume that you are seeing something in the Malal Ala just because you see something in the sky above the earth. Um, which I think is very reasonable, because where is the Malal Ala? I mean, as um, I think, I believe it was in Mutaridi who says it, because it's been a while since I've read this, but um, it says that, you know, you, you, you stand on earth, you see something, you don't actually know where in the sky it's taking place because it depends on, to situate anything in the heavens, you need to know you need to be able to read the position, the the uh, the the uh, what do you call it? the configuration of stars, and to read it in relation to where you are standing on Earth, and we have no indication that when we are looking, gazing upon the sky and seeing all the. Uh, stars and planets that we see that we are seeing anything close to Mala'il-A'la meaning the, 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 the spheres of Allah so interestingly I mean other than the the, uh, the most literal folks um, there was a healthy skepticism about just jumping to the conclusion that and it I wouldn't teach our children that oh you know look a shooting star there's a jinn being chased <laughs> that that would not be a healthy way of doing it <laughs> okay um, thank you Dr. Khalid um, based on one of the final chapters of reasoning with God and the commentary today on delusions of subservience would you define self-preservation as an Islamic obligation to oneself Yes, but, um, you know, keep in mind um, that when the Qur'an says, You know, don't, don't cast your, yourselves onto ruin. Uh, it makes that specific reference when it's telling us that the cast onto yourself onto ruin is by failing to spend in Allah's way. So self-preservation, it, it, it has to be qualified with a considerable amount of, um, that's, that's one of the, 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 anything that has to do with the self, the challenge of the self, is one of the toughest challenges that all of us confront um, because we're not objective when it comes to the self and not just not only are we not objective but it is our soft spot when it comes to shaitan so the easy thing is you know I see a gun and I decide to play Russian roulette with the gun and a sense of self-preservation tells me, don't do that. Don't put one bullet in the chamber and 
test your luck. Well, that's rather obvious, you know. And if I fail and I play Russian roulette and I kill myself, uh, you know, I'm not going to have much of an excuse. But the problem, you know, beyond that silly example, um, um, the excuse of self-preservation, Ibn Taymiyyah actually says this in, in, in Hajj al-Sunnah, um, has been used by the, the greatest minds to justify the most cowardly acts in history. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, at his time, the Mongols, after destroying Baghdad and massacring the people of Baghdad and massacring the people of Halab and massacring the people of Damascus, had nominally converted to Islam and were threatening to change the fabric of the religion itself. They were doing horrendous things in, while nominally Muslim. And he was extremely frustrated by how many Muslims were afraid because the Mongols were horrible. They, I mean, they were bloodthirsty, they tortured, and they killed, and they imprisoned. And um, he was extremely frustrated by how many people around him used the excuse of self-preservation to do the cowardly thing and to fail to resist. And self-preservation also sometimes justifies the people use it to justify the most stingy things. Um, you know, so there are tons of people that pay that live paycheck to paycheck. Literally, they they pay their bills. Their bank account is zero, maybe even a little negative, and then, but there are people who have the same anxiety, if not worse, if they don't have regularly, you know, cushion of 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, 50,000, 100,000. Um, I've known families in California, their cushion, their safety net is a couple million dollars. You know, if it, well, you know, we, we can't break our... Um, what do you call these things where you lock your money in? The oh, CDs and... Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, 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 because if we break the second million, then, you know... Um, you know, human beings are capable of... And it's... You know, uh, it's take yourself in isolation and just look deep into the mirror. And... Um, and ask yourself that ultimate, you will die. Reflect upon death. Death is often the biggest somber thing that can awaken you. And um, are you really going to be able to um, defend your self-preservation after death? Whatever it is. Okay. <clears throat> um, sit down. By, by the way, academia just uh, since this is my field, uh, I know a lot of my, I, I can't, I, I can sit here and tell you stories probably from now till the end of my life um, of how many of my colleagues, I'm talking about Muslim colleagues and even non-Muslims, the most cowardly things that they've done in the name of self-preservation. I mean, Yeah, it, 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 things that you wouldn't believe. It, it, it just... Uh, and it's sad, because academics are supposed to represent something. Um, but, you know, cowards before tenure remain cowards after tenure. Because even after tenure, well, you know, we want to get to step one, we want to get to step two, we want to get to step three, you know, there are ten steps. And then when you are, when you get above step, meaning that you've gone through all your post-tenure promotions, where well, you're too old to matter. Um, life is over. 
And then it's like, well, you have buddies everywhere and, you know, the provost is your friend and your vi the vice provost is your friend and the dean of college is your friend and you don't want to upset any of them because they're close to all of you. And so you just keep your mouth shut anyway. And uh, yeah, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times that I was told, well, I'm just waiting for tenure and you wait, I'm going to speak the truth after tenure. And 90, and sadly, I mean, I'm really sad to say this. Believe me, I'm honestly sad. 95% uh, of the time, it's an absolute hard wash. Bravery just never comes. Okay. Um, somewhere I was taught that Allah destroys a civilization if there are no believers. Were there any believers from the civilization of Sabah? No, it's not, um, it's not, I know what you're referring to, that, um, that Allah could save, could save a, 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 a nation, a people, a tribe, because of the few pious ones. Um, it actually, that, the, the first, you know, it comes from, uh, uh, the story of Sodom, where um, the um, in the biblical tradition, um, the angels tell the prophet, "Well, you know, find a single just person, or find a few just people, and we won't destroy Sodom." And he is unable to find them. Um, and that tradition then has an Islamic version that. God, but in the Islamic version, it is said in the tentative sense that it is possible that God would not send God's wrath upon a people for the few pious individuals in that society. But on the say, on the on the other hand, we have a lot of hadith that. When um, Allah's wrath befalls the people, it often is not just the unjust that will suffer because of that. And the most famous, famous hadith of that is the one that probably most of us have heard about the, the parable of people in a ship and some people start digging a hole in the bottom of the ship and the people on the upper deck of the ship um, don't stop them from doing so and and as a result when the ship sinks all of them will drown the the people who are guilty and this of course this parable is from the Prophet I gave a khutbah about that parable a long time ago but it, it put it this way if Allah doesn't destroy a people because of the pious minority, it is an act of grace. It is out of Allah's mercy. It is a gift, not a right. And um, and at what point do people deserve punishment on, uh, in this earth? Allahu alam. I mean, but one thing for sure. God gives people ample opportunities to reform and to change. And um, a lot of times when I see that we've done what some Muslim countries have done with oil money, I often wonder at the point at which um, chances run out because the the... The abuses have continued now for decades, but God is patient and merciful. And, you know, so from the 30s till today, although we've seen horrible abuses, we, you know, God continues to give people a chance. Okay, I have one last question, and it's from me. Um, the... 
in in response to the the um, Ibn Ajiba, I think that you were talking about the story about how when people have hollowness um, and they don't fill it with God, that the Shaitan sees it as a as a play area. Um, and also when you were talking in the beginning of the surah about um, people who are obstructionist and tend to um, sort of be very skeptical and deny, you know, things. So sort of putting those two things together, I know there are people, like I've also other people have written and things like that, people who are skeptical of the impact of shaitan. And they, they like don't believe in maybe what we call devil attacks, right? Or the or like the active engagement of you know the unseen and, and, and all of this, um, and they think it's just like people making bad decisions. Is that like um, like is that kind of a sign of either lack of faith or you know like. Um, you know, like when you're, you're just, you don't believe it, you know, or surat, it, like too much rationality. Surat Sabah it, itself, um, I mean, I, I didn't cover these verses, but um, where Shaitan, I'm, I don't want to recite the entire surah because a lot of times I have a hard time remembering if it's not in order. Um, um, where is it? Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, so I'm just going to... Uh, where... Um, Allah reminds us that and those I'll, I'll, I'll translate in a second that and that those who shaitan sultan shaitan's authority over human beings is by exploiting their own will their own energy there it, it, it's literally you, you know sometimes when I was much younger I, the little martial arts that I took the thing that stuck in my mind is that how you use your opponent's energy to defeat your mm -hmm. opponent like because I, I remember like I, I asked the the karate teacher who wanted me to fight some guy who was much bigger than I am He's so much bigger, how, what can I do? And said, well, you know, you just use his energy against him. Um, Shaitan uses you against you. Uh, and, and, and in fact, the, the, as the Prophet ﷺ says, the, that flows, Shayateen, the demons, flow or, or uh, are as close to you as or flow or, or interact with you like the blood flows in your vein. So the one of the biggest problems for someone who says I believe is when they are anchored only in Alam Shahada in the world of the sea. Because they're anchored in the material world, so they 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 live in the five percent, and they're unable to imagine when they are in a room like this room that we're in right now. They actually find it really difficult to imagine that this very room that we're in is filled with things that are not human. And it is filled with things that are not human. If only they could see. If only they could see. I mean, if if <laughs> the 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 um, the you know the the folks the, the few of them that are actually legitimate who can see paranormal things and 
you bring them in a room and they start telling you about stuff they see, whether they understand what they see or not. Um, the reality is, they'll be the first to tell you that there's very little space that you can step into that is not full of things. The, now, what do you do about someone that says, well, I believe, but I only want to acknowledge the material world in which I exist. See how often the Quran, how often Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala warns us about the shayateen, about demons. If you say no, they don't have an impact, then you're literally saying to what percentage of the Quran, I don't believe. It's a reality. Now it doesn't mean that we are. It doesn't mean that we are at their mercy, but it means that they are. They have invested interest in. They are, as Allah tells us, sworn enemies of humankind. And Allah tells us what. Shaitan is your enemy, so consider Shaitan an enemy. But takhuzuhu aduwa. So someone who says, well, I don't want to think of shaitan, and I don't want to think of the impact of shaitan, then they're not, they're not taking on shaitan as an enemy. And that is a, in a unnecessary step, a necessary part of developing the type of relationship with Allah because you can only, as I said many times before, beauty is only understood in relation to ugliness. Light is only understood in relation to darkness. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is only understood in relation to the opposite of Allah, what Allah is. So if you do not understand shaitan, then you can't understand Allah. It's the same way, can you understand light without understanding darkness? I don't want to think about the darkness. Well, then you'll never understand what light is. Thank you, alhamdulillah. I think um, we're out of time. And on that note, um, okay, we're going to do tarawiyah um, tonight. Um, we've been late. It's already almost 11. It's 5 to 11. We still have to have some dinner very quickly, inshallah. And then we will get on online for tarawiyah if anyone is is able to join, okay? 11.30? We'll shoot for 11.30, I don't no, know. No, we have to. They'll get an email. Okay, they'll get an, people will get an they'll email. Get, okay, we're, we're shooting for 11.30, pray for us. <laughs> no, we always are a little, take a little longer than we think we will. No, 11.30. Inshallah. Inshallah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for being with us, and great to see everybody. Inshallah, we will see you on Tuesday. Assalamu alaikum.